Well, good morning. Good morning. To my guest today. Um, I think you're one of the few law guests I have who I've actually never, I've never had you for a class or a tutorial. Yeah. So I think, uh, yeah, I just kind of know you from walking by your room and, <laughs> and bugging you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, Dr. Chris Taggart. And uh, thank you for being here. Really excited. My pleasure. Yeah, I was really excited to talk to you. We've, we've had some, uh, anytime I talk to you, it's always fun and interesting. So hopefully uh, this will be the same. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, it was pretty cool. So it was number two episode. Um, yeah, yesterday was pretty cool. Um, it's interesting. There, I was talking to Eve after we finished and... Uh, it was funny because I noticed one of the things was because I was excited and nervous and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. once you start talking, it's like there were a few times where I was like, oh, I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I could see how, I mean, I know Ryan, your first guest, and he's very eloquent and is interested in all kinds of very interesting things mm-hmm. and has a lot to say. In fact, I've, I'm familiar with some of his work, so it doesn't surprise me that it, you know, it went well. And, yeah. Getting used to it, um, but I think he's a good person to break the ice with. Yeah, yeah, I felt comfortable with him, so it was good, and and, and you as well. So it's kind of easing in, easing in a little bit. But uh, yeah, no, really excited. So um, yeah, so I guess kind of uh, jumping in. Um, so you sent me. <laughs> yeah, I might as well open with this because it's kind of funny. So uh, in preparation for this podcast, you sent me two abstracts. Right. And uh, <laughs> we uh, we read them. Well, I read it, and then I shared it with uh, Milan. And I was like, uh, do you know what any of this stuff means? <laughs> right. And the words were small, right? It wasn't like the, the words were big or nothing. The words were fine. It was just like, oh, God, I don't know how tomorrow's going to go. Because I'm like, oh, geez. Well, I mean, I know one of the ideas, maybe I could just quickly yeah, lay absolutely. it out. Yeah. Um, so... Um, I, I write in connection with, with criminal law and specifically, or at least most recently in connection with criminal law and with the idea uh, of what justifies us uh, in punishing people. And generally speaking, there are going to be two main approaches out there. I mean, I, I suppose you can break them down into more, but I would say the two big kind of approaches is a sort of forward-looking approach that says, well, look, what justifies us in punishing people is that by having an institution of punishment and doing these nasty things to people, putting them in cages and things, um, what what makes it okay for us to do that is that there are going to be certain effects in the future of doing that. And usually things like, well, if we do that to people, um, they themselves, if it's done to them, they're going to be afraid of doing it again, right? So, or else we're going to do that horrible thing to them again, and they'll say, "Oh my gosh, I don't want to do that." Or other people will see us doing it to them, and you know, maybe they would other be inclined to try it out themselves, but they think, "Hey, wait a minute, these people are really serious, right? So they're going to do that to us. So there's no way we're going to do that. Forget it." Uh, or uh, depending on, I guess, your view of what's possible in, in a, uh, a punitive situation. Uh, some people might think there are ways of punishing people that can sort of rehabilitate or educate them, and they might invest in uh, education and other 
uh, training of people who are serving jail sentences, and they might think that, well, look, if, if you punish them and do these things that are unpleasant to them, but do it in such a way that it might rehabilitate them, might change their character, then when they go out, they'll just voluntarily not keep doing these bad things, right? So all these kinds of ways of thinking about what justifies us when we punish people and, and spend all this money and indeed do these things that in some senses might seem harmful to people uh, is justified by the fact that going forward, the social harm that people might otherwise criminally do will decrease forward-looking. And this, this general approach, you can call that utilitarian approach or utilitarianism, right? That's the general idea, a form of consequentialism. What are the consequences for the future? And the other general um, approach uh, to justifying doing these things to folks is to look to the past. So you're saying, well, all right, if, you know, right now we've got to make this decision about punishing them and doing these things to them and, and how nasty is this thing that we're going to do to this person versus this person. We're going to lock them up for 10 years versus five years or we're going to fight them this or do what they're doing. And the main justification is looking back into the past, looking at what that, that person did or didn't do and saying, well, um, you did this really bad thing and you're morally responsible for doing this really bad thing. And because you're morally responsible for doing this really bad thing, and it's a really bad thing, we're going to say you're culpable for it. This would be the term that's often used in a criminal law con context, is you're culpable for having done that. And what that means is that, in effect, you deserve to have now this bad thing happen to you. And, uh, and so we're looking back to the past, looking at what you did to justify what we're doing to you uh, now, and... Uh, this type of thinking is roughly a retributive or retributivism, retributivist line of thinking. It comes in different varieties. Um, one variety that I find plausible is a kind of weak version of this, which would just say that, look, if you're going to punish someone, then that they deserve at least what you're doing to them is necessary. In other words, um, you know, there are stronger forms of this way of thinking that say, hey, look, if you deserve something bad happening to you, then it would be wrong for us not to do it to you, right? That's like even stronger. Um, whereas I'm, I'm at least, I find attractive at least the weaker version that says, well, look, if, if it's going to be okay for us to do this to you, um, at the very least, you should morally deserve it. If you don't morally deserve it, then it's not okay, in other words, for us to do this to you, even if somehow punishing you would, would bring about better benefits for society. Even if that's true, it's still not okay. That's not enough to justify it. So in connection with this second line of thinking and this sort of weak version of the second line of thinking, a lot of the stuff that I do is I look at criminal legal doctrine. And in particular, on, the, on the, the legal end, I'm interested in what's called the voluntary act requirement, this idea that unless you freely or voluntarily, in some sense, um, do something, it's not okay for us to, to punish you. Now, there are different reasons to think this. 
for example, someone might think, well, yeah, I mean, the reason it's not okay to punish someone unless they do something um, is that if, if, for example, just punishing someone for thinking something, I mean, that sounds like the thought police, or that sounds like George Orwell or, you know, some kind of Orwellian nightmare. So that's one reason. Um, another reason, though, is that if, if I do something, then I'm exercising my agency as a person. And there's this idea that when I do that, I have enough control over what I do so that if I use my control over what I do or don't do to freely choose to say do something that's evil or, or bad or, or wrong, that that is at least necessary for, for me to do that. I had to be able to do that in order to deserve punishment. Right. So then the idea becomes, if you look at this voluntary act requirement, which is actually a legal doctrine, and then you justify it by saying, well, the reason that's there, right, is not just because it's not enough for someone to think evil thoughts to punish them or to be a certain way to punish them. But in addition to that, we want to make sure that if we're going to punish somebody, it's because at some point in the past, they had a choice, a real choice as to either do the bad thing or not. And they exercise that choice to do the bad thing. And so now that means that it's now possible for us to legitimately say, okay, well, then you're culpable for having done that bad thing. And then therefore you, you at least plausibly deserve punishment. And then that opens the door to us to maybe say it's okay, therefore, for us to punish you that much. Doesn't mean we have to. I mean, we might decide to show clemency or you know there might be other factors but at the very least we have to be justified in punishing you at least that much to be justified in punishing you at all and you have to exercise in a sense your free will and uh, performing a voluntary act for that to even be possible so that's the the basic angle for all this now there are a whole bunch of words I'm sure I used in the abstract that are philosophical Right? So how does the philosophy tie into this idea, right? the freedom that someone would really need, the control or the ability that they would really need in order for it to be possible for them to be culpable enough that it's okay that we can punish them, that taps into a philosophical debate that's been going on forever. I first learned about it when I was in graduate school at the University of Notre Dame, and I was taking graduate level courses in philosophy of religion. And you know, one of the contexts has to do with um, people's ultimate uh, fate, you know, whether they get to go to heaven or hell or, um, and so forth. And whether um, if, for example, let's say there are forces bigger than themselves, like the forces of the laws of nature and previous events that they have no control over, and if the way the world works um, is such that the way the laws of nature work and the previous things that go on just sort of just sort of force it to be the case, right, that everything, including a person's actions that come afterward, have to be that way. I mean, there's just there's no way that person could at the time they make any decision really truly access uh, if you like, a possible world other than the one that they wind up in, so to speak, because they have to choose that way. Um, this, this idea 
uh, engaged a lot of theological thinkers into thinking, well, then it, it, there's something sort of unfair about saying that at the end of, say, their life on earth, they wind up being punished, say, for example, in hell or w whatever your conception of that would be. And so in a way, um, I think that you can translate that idea, except that the punishment, so to speak, isn't happening in an otherworldly hell. The punishment is, is happening in a very real worldly prison, say. And, and um, so that, for example, even if, uh, regardless of what one's religious beliefs are or are not, I think the same philosophical debate that animated that kind of thinking um, also properly animates the thinking about what we actually do when we really do punish people, right? So I'm kind of importing that debate. Now, this debate is sometimes called the determinism free will debate. And to, to just basically set it up, I've, I've sort of hinted at it before, right? But the yeah. idea is that determinism would be the view that given what the laws of nature are, and given, say, what a distant past state of the total universe is, then every state of the universe that comes after that has to be the way it is. And then there's this, including the states that involve whatever choices, say, I make, like my choice to do this interview, for example, was sort of, it just, it just had to happen right now, the way it's happening, and the exact words coming out of my mouth, and the exact thoughts that I'm having right now just sort of just had to be that way, given everything that was going on millions of years ago and the, the, you know, the laws of the universe. The other thing that I think is important just to understand this is that the issue doesn't have to do with our ability to know what's going to happen. It's just that um, once it happens, we know that that's the only thing that really could have happened. And that's enough to know, according to some people, that when I do things that seem to me to be like I'm doing it freely, well, it turns out I'm really not. Because it turns out I really couldn't have done otherwise. And the basic argument for that would be that, well, look, um, what does it really mean to say that I could have done otherwise that I'm doing? Most people would say, well, what that means is that at the moment I do anything, I have a real choice and I have enough control over what I'm doing that I can either do one thing or the other thing. But if I have absolutely no control over the way the universe was before I even existed, and I personally don't have any control over what the actual causal laws of nature are and the way that the world works, and, and if it turns out that it works deterministically and I don't have control over that, um, well, if you take these two things over which I have no control and you say, well, look, if these two things happen, then it has to be true that I say, do this interview right now. Well, then ultimately, I don't have control over whether I'm doing this interview right now because there are things I don't control that force the thing that's happening to happen right now exactly the way it's happening. So there's this concern that if determinism is true, if it is, then, in fact, we don't truly have free will, even though it seems to us, maybe, as if we do. And um, there are two main views 
about whether determinism and free will preclude each other. That is the idea that if, if determinism is true, then forget it. Um, you don't have free will. And that view is called incompatibilism. They're not compatible with each other. And I'm convinced that incompatibilism is true. That's my current position on this. However, there are many people who would disagree with me and say that well, yeah, I mean, maybe determinism is true, but even if it is, you can still have genuine, if you like, free will that could really genuinely make you culpable for doing bad things, therefore genuinely make you maybe deserve punishment, and therefore justify us in punishing you. Whereas I'm thinking, well, no, if, if determinism is actually true, then it turns out, for example, that the actual practices that we engage in are ultimately not justified because of a ultimately metaphysical problem. Determinism versus free will is philosophical metaphysics, but my, idea, my thought, and I think many people might agree with me, that, uh, is that despite the fact that this is a philosophical problem, it is very, very tightly connected to a very real legal thing that we do to people all the time. So that just gives you a little bit of background as maybe what some of those words are. Are there any other particular words you remember that you'd like me to explain? No, I mean, I think you kind of, <clears throat> I think you kind of covered it. Um, it's just more, um, I guess, because I, I haven't taken the philosophy side of uh, the modules that were here. But one of the, I mean, just generally, one of the interesting, kind of how I got onto sort of thinking about this a little bit more um, was a TV show I was watching. And the guy goes to jail. He gets set up for a crime, and he goes to jail for 15 years. And he committed the crime, um, but it was he got basically snitched on and spends 15 years in prison. So, he, so the idea is he, he does, at least on the surface, seem voluntarily to be doing yeah, this. Yeah, he's a thief. He's so a he, thief. he was okay. a thief. So he was stealing, you know, like art. And, right. And is an excellent show. And one of the things is that when he went into jail, he was with, uh, he was with his girl, uh, girlfriend, and, uh, you know, loved her very much. She loved him. And then, you know, goes away for 15 years. Uh, he gets out, finds her, and she's married with two kids. Oh, boy. When he gets out. And that's, that's like how the show starts. It was a great show. And that's sort of what first kind of got me onto that because I just started thinking like just about punishment in general, just thinking about it a little bit more. Just the having a bit, it sounds kind of dumb, but having a, a bit more of a better understanding of what it means to incarcerate someone. You know? Well, yes. And, and what it means, I mean, the, the effects are quite real. I think that that obviously, I mean, it sounds like a really interesting show. Oh, it's phenomenal. And yeah. it sounds like um, I would probably, maybe one of the reasons I might enjoy that show is to think, boy, it's a good thing I'm not him. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that poor guy. Yeah. But, but it does highlight uh, the very real effects. And, and I think what it does also is it, it amplifies just how important it is to get clear even philosophically on whether it really is justified. In this case, the way you're describing the show, I mean, it's not like there was somebody who said, 
you either steal this thing or else I'll kill your brother or something like that. He just, yeah, he was a thief and he decided to do it. Maybe he made a bad choice. But I guess it really does highlight the point that even if, if, if determinism is incompatible with genuine free choice, then in a certain ultimate sense, he didn't choose to do that freely. Right. It's sort of the fault, if you like, of the past and the laws of nature. It's not his fault. Right, because if you think that what you do, for example, is caused ultimately by what your brain does that then moves your limbs around, well, um, you know, if, if a hurricane is going on and it blows something into something else and makes it behave a certain way, in effect, the hurricane here is the past. And it's making his brain behave in that way. And his brain just behaves in a certain way. And... Um, you, you could distinguish, say, the person from his brain and just say, well, it's really his brain that did it, not him. Um, this is another way, that, that, that another a- angle, actually, that, that, that comes up in this kind of discussion. It's, you know, it's not just a matter of the relationship between events and subsequent events. But another thing that becomes very interesting, I think, in this context is asking yourself, you know, when you're punishing a person. It matters what a person is. So, I mean, what if a person just is that person's brain? And what if, in effect, what the brain is effectively, or the part of the brain that matters, or the aspect of the brain that matters, is really just a whole bunch of brain events that transpire? And if you start to think about a person that way, I mean, uh, many years ago, I taught an intro to philosophy class, and we talked about personal identity. And you start to ask, well, what makes you the person who you are? And this question becomes very important, not just the question of what, what kind of a thing is a human being, but the question of what makes a, one human being that one and not this other one. Because when you punish somebody, you're punishing that one. And you have, to, you have to have a justification for, for, for punishing, you know, Abbott and not Costello or Laurel and not Hardy. And, and so it's not just a matter of, in general, what kind of a thing is a, hu- a human being? What do we all have in common? You know, are we, um, are, are, are we like, here, here's a question, right? You, you could say, well, let's see, I, you know, I wonder what a human being is. Or here's, here's one view about what a human being is. A human being is a thing that's actually made up of two different objects or substances. And one of them is physical and is subject to the laws of physics, say, um, and might be subject to deterministic laws or what have you. Um, And the other one is non-physical. We could call it a soul or a a non-physical ghostly thing. Um, Depending on how non-physical you make it, you could even say that it has no particular location in space, although it presumably would have to have a location in time. Um, it, would, it would have no mass. Um, and, and it, we can call it, say, the soul part of the person, if you like. Um, it is the thing that is conscious. It is the thing that has all the psychological properties of the person. It is the thing that, so to speak, houses or has the personality that really makes that person who they are. And, um, and that what's going on, um, you know, throughout your life, at least your life, depending on your religious beliefs, say on earth, 
is that these two substances causally interact with each other. So my soul, so to speak, uniquely causally interacts with the brain inside of this bony vat <laughs> right right here. Um, but if you ask, you know, where am I? What I am is what I really am, right, on this view, is this non-physical entity. So in a sense, I literally am nowhere, but I causally act with the world, interact with the world at a point that's somewhere inside the skull, say, for example. Um, but all of this would be true, equally true of you or anybody else. It's just that you have your soul interacting with your brain and your skull, right? And so then the question, you can then say, well, all right, yeah, but what is it that makes you Marcus and, and me Chris? And some people would say, well, the thing that makes you Marcus is that, well, that you are identical to the Marcus soul. The property of just being that non-physical object is what you are. And, uh, and similarly for me. But then some people think, well, that seems implausible when you think about what really makes somebody who they are. This is getting back to that point I made about events going on in your brain. So let me explain. Right? Some people think, well, no, you know, thinking about I, saying that what Marcus is is a particular non-physical substance is not the right way to think about it. Instead of thinking about people as these substances or things, and, you know, the number of people equals the number of substances or things like, you know, the, the number of glasses of water equal the number of glasses on this table or something like that. That's not the way to think about it. Uh, the way to think about a person and here I'm, I'm going to it'll be clear that I'm an American, but I'm going to use it uh, <laughs> that a person is like a baseball game. OK, a person is like a baseball game. People are like baseball games, not like rocks. Rocks, you know, they, there are a certain number of them, and there are these different substances, and you count them up. But no, what a person is is a baseball game in the following sense. A person, in this other sense, is like a gigantic event. A person is something that happens. And just like a baseball game, um, things that happen can happen. They don't happen all at once. They happen over time. And... There are different, you might call them stages of the event. Now, now in the United States, right, baseball is broken down into little sub-events. A whole baseball game is broken down into these sub-parts called innings. And there are nine of them. And so, for example, if you watch baseball uh, and you come into the middle of a game, um, you, you might say, hey, what inning is it? And that'll give you an idea of how many more chances the teams have to score points and so forth. So w one way I would, I would describe identifying who a person is, is I, I used to tell this little story. I would say um, in the United States, sometimes when you go to a baseball game, you get two games for the price of one. It's a long day, but it's called a doubleheader, okay? So let's say you go with your friend to a doubleheader and you're watching the first game and it's kind of going along. And let's say it's getting about halfway through that game. Let's say, you know, you're in the fifth or the sixth inning and you decide, hey, I want to go and get us some snacks. Uh, I want to get us some soda and some nachos or whatever. And the friend says, oh, yeah, that's great. OK, so you get up and you go in. Now, it turns out that there's this unbelievably long queue. Right. And it's just taking forever. And you're thinking, well, 
hey, I'm here for a double header. Why not? You know, it's worth it. Uh, wait and wait. And it's just, it's really taking a long time. I mean, it just, it really is um, an unusually long time. But eventually you get the snacks and the drinks and you come back and you join your friend back out there in the stadium and you're sitting down and you've been gone so long. Now you're looking out there and you see the same teams out there, but you ask your, your, your friend, is this the same game? Um, and in a way that that question makes sense because what you're basically asking is whether the, the inning, this little event that's going on right now is part of the big event that was the first game. And is that still going on? Is that first game like still not totally over yet? Right. Or is this little event that I'm now watching part of this inning part of now this other game. So the idea is the games are like persons, different people. And what makes you the person that you are, what makes Marcus Marcus, is that um, Marcus is made up of a bunch of little sub-events. Instead of being innings of baseball, though, the idea that these events are kind of like Marcus consciousness events, streams of consciousness. And what makes you the person you are is that all of the little subparts of this big event that you are are all related to each other in the right way, causally related to each other. And one of the relationships that people will often theorize when you talk about personal identity is that the, the later consciousness events that make up you contain memories, at least, of the previous ones whereas the previous ones don't contain all the memories of the later ones. So there's a kind of, you might say, part of the relationship is an asymmetric memory accumulation relationship or whatever, right? And, and um, at any rate, uh, John Locke, for example, was a philosopher who came up with this idea. So the idea that a person is like uh, a great a baseball game is a great big event. Um, and... So, for example, if, if, if you think of that way of distinguishing you and me, and then you say, all right, well, maybe these conscious events are brain events. Now, going back to what I was saying earlier, and, and keeping in mind that our brains are the things that like cause our bodies ultimately to do what they do. Now, imagine a defendant who just, just is, ultimately, this great big brain event, and what's happening, and if you assume that the brain event is controlled by deterministic laws, say like a hurricane might be or something like that, if that's true, right? Well, then, you know, essentially what you're doing is you're just, you know, you have these events that just have to unfold the way they're going to unfold. And then what you're doing is you're, you're, you're causing this person, so to speak, to be made up of these subsequent really horrible conscious experiences, like the, the conscious experience of being locked up in a jail cell or something like this. And, you know, if you start to think about it this way, you might just think that this whole practice we have of punishing events that just sort of have to unfold the way they unfold, that doesn't make sense. And now here, I mean, we're not just talking about the distinction between determinism right, and free will, but even, even the opposite of determinism, right, would be indeterminism, 
And that would say, well, hey, given the past series of events that have happened, well, maybe the events that come after don't have to happen that way. Maybe, maybe some of them can randomly occur. But then, if you think about it, even if determinism isn't true, and you make, oh, great, well, now we can have free will, right, because we're no longer determined. Well, no, you, you still might have a problem. Here's why, right? If the, if the events that actually could go either way and are not determined by previous events occur, say, I don't know, randomly on the quantum level, and they just constitute part of what you are, right? So what you are is a great big series of events, some of which happen randomly according to quantum laws. Well, that doesn't seem to describe, I mean, where's the free will in that? Because the idea, remember, behind free will is that I'm supposed to exert the right kind of control at the crucial time regarding what I do or don't do. And that's what makes me culpable. But now, if you try to sort of save free will in the face of determinism by saying, no, determinism's false. Instead, you've got quantum physics and all this other indeterministic stuff, probability laws and all that. Well, then there's still a problem in a way because you might just say, yeah, but how, how can we have the right kind of control over what we do if this alleged control is due to things that randomly happen. Because if things ultimately randomly happen, at least within certain probability ranges, then nothing controls it. That's what it means to say that it happens randomly, right? Yeah, you could say, I could tell you the percentage chance that something will happen, but in any one case, it's either gonna happen or not within that percentage, and whether or not it does is random. At least under certain interpretations, I'm not a physicist, but of quantum physics, it's just random. Um, and, well, I mean, if what we're trying to find is a kernel of control, a kernel of control that we have that both makes us in control and in such a way that we can escape the specter of determinism, well, this form of indeterminism doesn't seem to do that. Yeah, sure, it gives us indeterminism, but it doesn't give us the kind of control. So there's a deep kind of set of metaphysical questions kind of going back to that. And I think these metaphysical questions turn both on what all human beings are like in general, and as I said, on what ultimately distinguishes and makes one human being that one and not another one. And I think both of these metaphysical questions are really centrally play, play front and center in this, in this issue about um, what we do to people when we punish them and whether it's justified. So that's elaborating a little bit a more of a dimension of, of some of the stuff that I find uh, really interesting and some of the stuff that I grapple with in my writing. Yeah, I, I'm really glad that you brought up the, the idea of the self because when I was in psychology, we, we briefly um, touched upon that because um, it wasn't in psychology for, for very long before I transferred my law degree. But that was one of the things that was I never really thought about up until then. Um, but that's just the thing. If you're going to have someone, you're going to hold someone morally culpable for doing something, you, you can't run away from the fact that you have to question, well, what, who is that person really then? You know, I mean, even if you think about, well, I'm, I'm sure this is true for everybody, you know, certainly for me, I mean, the person that I was six months ago is nowhere near the same person that I am now. And the thoughts 
that I like to think of a better version, of course, we're moving in the right direction. Um, but that person's not nowhere near the same person that I am today. And that person six months ago is still even better than the person that I was a year ago and two years. You know, I mean, even when you talk about, you know, sleeping, are you, are you, the, is the self contained at that point? It's a, it's a temporary loss of consciousness. But then when you throw dreams in there, it's like, well, what's that? Like it gets deep very quickly and, and you really do have to grapple with, well, what is the self and, and how do you hold that person, you know? Well, uh, yes, and I agree. And, and, you know, you had mentioned psychology and this actually reminds me of a paper, uh, a famous paper, and I would recommend it to you and to anyone who's listening if, if, if they might find this sort of thing interesting. It was written by, it's not that long, it was written by a philosopher named Tom Nagel, Thomas Nagel, and I believe the title was Brain Bisection and the Unity of Consciousness. And it involved, you know, you had mentioned psychology, and it actually brought in certain experiments, certain phenomena that are studied perhaps even primarily by uh, psychologists and and maybe not philosophers. But uh, basically, my understanding is that the way the brain works is that there are different parts of the brain that do very discreetly different things. And there's this idea that many psychologists have, or people who study the brain have, that um, the brain, the mind, if you like, if you think of the brain as your mind in some sense, um, it's, it's not as if there's this one central sort of homunculus for whom everything is happening, or who's sort of observing the world. It's sort of like a a theater and your experience is an experience for you and you the person are the homunculus instead the idea is there is no homunculus all there all there is or all there are are these different parts of the brain that are coordinated and um, one idea is that one of the main parts of the brain that does this coordination of all these different parts is i believe it's called the corpus callosum yeah. It's, it's a part of the brain that physically lets sort of the right half of your brain and the left half of your brain get signals from each other so that they coordinate. And there are people who, for whatever reason, have their corpus callosum severed or malfunction. So um, there have been a number of experiments. I don't know if you've heard of these you have okay so so I'll, I'll be brief but the idea is that um let's say i'm one of these split brain people um so that the two sides of my brain aren't talking to each other right and one side of the brain controls say one of my hands and one of my eyes and the other side of the brain controls the other one of my hands and the other one of my eyes and so what will happen is um there'll be a curtain, let's say, between us. And on the other side of the curtain are a bunch of objects. And, um, but my, my two eyes are hooked up so that one eye is seeing, say, the word pencil, let's say. And the other eye is seeing a picture of a, 
of a paperclip, let's say. And then, and then the only instruction that I'm given is, please reach your hands under the um, curtain and feel around and, and retrieve the item that you see. And what happens is whatever hand sort of goes along with the eye that sees the pencil, once they go under there, it's as if they're two different people. They, they just, the one just operates completely separately from the other. And, um, and sometimes, um, you know, you might imagine that the person with the one hand gets the paper clip and the other hand gets the pencil and says, here. And they say, yeah, but, you know, take a look. I mean, you're giving me two things. I mean, what, what's going on here? And the person sitting there, you know, might, might be confused or might not fully understand this. But what Nagel points out is that, I mean, you have the right brain is essentially making one decision and having one kind of experience and the left brain having another. And then he says, well, look, if there's no one homunculus, if in the end it's just a whole bunch of these modularly different areas doing their thing that's usually coordinated, the one suggestion that Nagel makes is, well, maybe split brain people, they're two people. But then he says, but yeah, but if that's true, um, why wouldn't there be two people even when the corpus callosum is active? I mean, it's just two people who don't realize that they're two of them. Why? Because they take cues from each other and they don't realize that both of them are inside this one head. It's just hard to flush them out. Right. Yeah? Yeah. And, and then, you know, Nagel goes on and says, well, what if... What if there's, you know, other bits of the brain that connect, say, the right front half to the right rear half or something like this? I mean, in principle, who knows how many people are inside your head right now? Hopefully many. <laughs> right, unless you're like Sybil or something, you know, if they're there. But the idea is, right, the idea is, even if you don't suffer from some, you know, dramatic form of multiple personality disorder or you don't have this unusual abnormality of having your corpus callosum uh, severed, the point is that the number of people that I'm talking to right now, who knows how many people I'm talking to right now, who are both sort of running, so to speak, as programs or whatever, in that head, in, in the head that I call Marcus's head, right? And so, you, uh, so at any rate, I just mentioned this because you can see how it brings in empirical psychology and the modular nature of the way, I mean, we have empirical reason to think that the brain seems to work in this modular way. And some people draw from that the implication that what we might think of as our intuitive concept of a person, and you might think of all these different ways I was gesturing at earlier about how philosophers try to argue about what is a personal what is personal identity what are the identity conditions for a person that that it turns out maybe that there are no such things ultimately as persons really there just seem to be and that in the end all that's going on are a bunch of brain events sometimes they're coordinated sometimes they're not and when they're coordinated we just sort of say oh yeah well there's that person there um, Another, another philosopher who wrote some very interesting things about this is a philosopher named Derek Parfit. 
and Derek Parfit took very seriously the idea of this 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 notion that, um, and and he sometimes would refer to it as the bundle theory of persons that there there is no ego, there is no person, all there is, are all of these mental events that are sometimes related in these different ways, and not always in such a way. And and sometimes he says, well, okay. How do we relate them so that the one big string of events that, hey, there's a person, well, it starts to get a little bit messy. I mean, for example, he, he has these interesting exper thought experiments. So let's say that, you know, there's, say, me, and then imagine that, you know, there's, there's some device that's sort of like the transporter in Star Trek. And the way this device works is I get on the transportation pad or whatever it is, and the machine reads my pattern down to the last molecule, let's say. And then the matter that I'm made up of, the atoms or whatever, are, are destroyed or, or are just, they're, they're just ripped apart. And then they just go off into the air or whatever. And then what the machine does is it scans the area where I'm to be transported and it finds all the molecules there and it's got the pattern. And so it recreates that, that exact same pattern just with different stuff, different raw materials that it's gathering up from the transportation site. Well, if it can do that, what if it, what if it creates two of them? Okay. So it, 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 maybe there's a malfunction and, you know, it, you, you program it to just make one and then that's me and that's how I got there. But this time, I don't know, you know, the switch got switched from one to two or whatever it is. And so what it does is it, 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 it gathers up twice as much material um, and then makes two of us. And we both have the same memories. We both remember, but we're now looking at each other. Um, well, which one of us is the same person who got into that transporter? And um, what Parfit is suggesting is that, well, this suggests that even if you try to go with this kind of, oh, there are these events and, you know, they're related in this certain way, even then, you know, it's, it's not so clear. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe the concept of a person and individuating one person from another is just a kind of messy concept. Like, you know, I mean, imagine that are, there are a bunch of people and they form this club and they have a bunch of rules. And the club is called the, I don't know, the British Field Hockey Lovers Club of Guilford. And it's been around since 1869 and it goes on and goes on. And I don't know, um, there are these changes, you know, it's, it's bylaws change, it's membership changes, and eventually, in fact, it stops meeting for a while. And the, the meeting house that they had, you know, it, it closes down. And I don't know, 12 years go by, and let's say there's this one surviving member who used to be in the club, and he convinces a whole bunch of other people that it would be fun to um, sort of resurrect this club and maybe even give it the same name and they and they have totally different people and they change the laws around a little bit and in addition to field hockey they decide hey let's 
let's be enthusiastic about ice hockey too, you know, because that's pretty cool. And then they start, you know, talking about all these types of hockey um, and they do it in a different building. Well, here's a question. Is that the same club? And um, is it related in the right way? Um, well, I don't know. Maybe it is. You can make an argument that it is. It's got, you know, one of the same people. It's got some of the same animating ideas. It's in the same town. He, even the way he talks about it is, hey, let's resurrect this club, this club, meaning, you know, this one. Let's, let's bring it back, it back to life. And now it's, yeah, the continuation of that club. It's just that that club had a kind of hiatus when it was asleep, say. Yeah, it's, you know, a, you it's the same concept. Yeah. Same concept. You were just asleep for a while, right? Um, and so now the issue becomes, well, how do you ind even individuate persons? And again, all of this is ultimately highly relevant to the way we treat each other, the, the judgments we make about each other, morally or ethically, and indeed the, the, the judgments, the moral ethical judgments we might make vis-a-vis uh, -vis each other that we then use to justify, um, again, locking them up in a cage at great public expense for years and years, you know, having these horrible things happen to them. So again, um, trying to get back at that same, there's a connection, right, with, with the, the, the criminal legal doctrine and the voluntary act requirement uh, that is connected, I think, to all of these philosophical uh, discussions. Yeah, it's really interesting, too. Like, <clears throat> yeah, for anyone, w w a little while ago, when you mentioned the split brain experiments, if anyone's interested, it's a quick Google search. There's tons of that stuff in psychology. It'd be easy to find. I'll, I'll throw a link up to a couple of those papers, too. Um, if there, if there's a free one out there, there was also a book called "The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat," I believe. Oh, I've heard of that one too. And yeah, yeah. I would recommend that one because that really just there's certain behaviors that some of the patients engage in that really bring out just how modular and discrete different parts of the brain are. Yeah, and it really gives you this sense that. You know, if there's a particular brain lesion in a particular place, that that person isn't entirely there exactly, or that person can't, just cannot do certain things. It's really quite striking. Yeah. I mean, I know with me, um, I had a pretty major concussion when I was uh, 16. Was it grade 11? Grade 10? Funny, I can't remember. That's weird. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you would be uh, if you were in the states. You would be either at the beginning of grade eleven or the end of grade yeah, ten. I think right? it was grade eleven, I believe, because uh, it was November. If I remember that correctly, it was November, right around Remembrance Day. Hmm. So it was right around there, and uh, there's a ice hockey, and I remember that day really well, like burned into my memory. And I don't really remember the rest of that year from, like, November to the following December. I really just don't have any memory uh, looking back. But, but even there were some, like, very distinct changes, you know, in my behavior and my thinking processes that were very worrisome and also just so not me. Mm. And so that's it, it's really interesting, you know, just kind of how that sort of plays out. And even um, when you look at, psychology looks at this a lot too. Uh, I mean, I imagine, Sam Kinison, the comedian, you've probably I'm heard of him, yeah. That, yes. And it was funny, and uh, there's a really excellent documentary about him, and he's known for people who don't know, I mean, he's passed away now, he's been dead a long time, 
but he was like one of the biggest comics in the world at at, at a point. Was he the one who? It was a Rodney Dangerfield film, and one of the professors um, was. I think that sounds right. Was yeah. played by this comedian. I think it was Kinnison. And he's crazy. And he was nuts. Yeah, he's insane. And, he's and a he hilarious, would, dude. But he's crazy. Yeah, and he yeah. would like come up to somebody and say, "Say it, say it." Yeah, that sounds like you know, Kinnison. And, and, yeah. And, and, <laughs> And I just thought it was so funny. Yeah. Um, right. And uh, he's yeah. actually in the uh, he's actually the limo driver in the Motley Crue "Kickstart My Heart" video. Oh my. Okay. So he, so he's driving the the limo. And uh, but anyway, the reason I bring him up is um, he um, I believe he was struck by a car as a pedestrian. I believe that's what happened to him. And he had some significant brain trauma. And after the accident, basically turned into the Sam Kinison that we all know. Um, it's just very interesting when you look at how, especially nowadays with CTE and, you know, as someone who participates in contact sports and I love NFL football and UFC and, and NHL hockey, all that stuff. And just the effects that brain trauma has on changing that person, you know, what it means to, for that person to change. You know? Well, I think, I think one of the, classic cases of this and and some of your listeners might be just interested in trying to google this is i believe the name of the person was phineas gage yeah that's right and that was the classic case and yeah. i think in his case this was in the 19th century i believe it is one of the most horrific things i i can't even if you've heard of this guy see you go on and explain it but yeah yeah i mean devastating I mean, this guy i think was a rail worker of some right. kind and they were they were using dynamite and explosives, and just somehow a metal bar basically completely impaled this guy's skull and went right through his brain. Yeah. Behind one of his eyes, I believe. Yeah, it, was. it literally went through, it went from the bottom of his face and uh, literally blew out the back. Like, how this guy walked away is <laughs> like, you, you'd be dead. Yeah. Like, it's, it's ridiculous. But I remember it. It, it basically um, damaged a part of the brain that was crucial to his personality and his cognitive processing and so forth. And people would just say that, sure, um, there is a person who survived, but we're not so sure that person is Phineas. Right. Um, and know, even his wife said, I believe, because I remember this, yeah, psychologist, this is like, when uh yeah it, it's like the poster boy for for psychology but it's like yeah uh even his wife said like he's he was apparently he was a super nice guy before the accident he was a real dick after <laughs> you're right and uh, <laughs> among other changes you know eloquently put um but yeah so it just really goes yeah. to show you know how yeah like who is that person now who what do you who and what are you dealing with you know and, and to say okay so that guy commits a crime okay you're sentenced and this person's convicted and Phineas Gage is convicted. But is that Phineas Gage? You know, that's, that's I, the age-old debate, you know? Yeah, I mean, I often think, I mean, it, I mean, it's a good thing the brain has a nice carrying case that kind of keeps it safe. But, you know, I think about things like, and I'm no expert on this, but things like mental illness and yeah. um, forms of dementia. And I often think to myself, sort of how fragile a thing it is that I am even who I am. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and I think this also relates very heavily to something that I don't study. I study criminal law and the philosophy of criminal law, but another angle that I, I'm not an expert on, but are on sources of criminality and the effects that the environment can have on brain development. And this also sort of feeds into the broad philosophical question. Yeah, before you're even born, you're already having, you know, because there's research too that shows that if you're, if the mother is, um, you know, living in a domestic uh, violence abuse situation, um, that type of adrenaline dump constantly has an effect in the, you know, yeah, I mean, I mean, side. I think in these kinds of contexts, you know, the 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 sort of graphic and sort of obvious context is when, and let's say that um, the the mother during her pregnancy was taking this drug that the FDA probably shouldn't have <laughs> um, authorized, and then there are these horrific mutagenic effects. Um, but I think you make the point very well that hey. Um, a high stress environment might not have a graphic mutagenic effect that's so obvious, but it can definitely have an effect on on that person and maybe their propensity to to do various things. So yes, I think I think this opens up a whole can of worms. Uh, but I've always been fascinated by, I you know I think that um, I think that if I hadn't studied philosophy and law. I think that it, that in third place, so to speak, because a lot of the philosophy and law I get interested in has to do with empirical psychology. And there's so much overlap. I mean, the, the, you know, between all these different schools of, of, of you know academia, it's it's just unavoidable, right? But in a way, it's it's necessary because, you know, it's it seems to be like recently, oh, yeah, I don't know, but generally, you know, it does seem like. It's so it's so easy to make generalizations. It's so easy just to be okay, you know. Even politically now, the way that identity politics play out, yeah. you're a lefty, so this is who you are. You're a righty, this is who you are. Well, that's very disturbing. I I mean, again, I'm no political expert, but just observing just generally how polarizing and um, stereotyping and knee jerk reaction mm-hmm. judging politics can become. Yeah, I, I think it is it is a, a worrisome thing, regardless of what your particular um, your political leanings are. Just just that that it's become so tribal, in, in so to speak. Which is both. dangerous because yeah. you know it, it's just not th- that type of aggression all the time. You know, it's just it's not good for you, and, and it's not good. You know, especially when you look at from the wanting to go into criminal defense when you look at you know people being basically before the trial even begins your the public perception you're already convicted in the court of public opinion and and just how dangerous that is you know i mean i you know make no mistake i mean pretty much all my clients future clients they're all guilty they all did whatever they did i mean for the most part you know and that's okay you know i mean it is what it is but they're entitled to a fair trial and you know and the problem is is that it does seem like just people just don't accept that anymore. It's just, no, 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 we just, you know, persecute you publicly, and then that's the end of it. And the danger is, of course, well, one of the things that, you know, the criminal law is concerned with is not incarcerating people who aren't actually responsible for that crime. That's a horrible miscarriage of justice. 
and yet it seems to be the attitude is, well, we'll destroy your career, we'll destroy your name, your reputation. So even if you are innocent after in a criminal, you know, criminal way, well, <laughs> what do you got left? You know. Well, and I think that that kind of effect is much much easier to occur in a world of mass media and social media and so forth. I mean, I think that I think that could happen even before the advent of all mm -hmm. of this. And, and it's just, just harder. It's, it's more yeah, work. <laughs> it's just more difficult. You yeah. actually have to work for it. And now, carrying out you know whatever it is you're trying to carry out is is much easier. It's just a a couple clicks away and um, maybe a little bit of luck getting enough likes or whatever it is and you yeah. know you're off to the races yeah yeah no I know it, it's yeah it's interesting and it's certainly like m much more so this last semester um, really kind of changing or not really changing but kind of understanding how little I know when it comes to what it means to incarcerate someone and you know really trying to you know it's because i used to have the attitude like you know lock them up and throw away the key kind of thing and you know it's yeah okay i mean for you know if you're a terrorist you know convicted terrorist or you know pretty heinous murderer yeah okay you know that's that's fine and it seems to be you know accepted but you really have to be careful with that kind of attitude and you really do have to come to the table with a I've certainly kind of, based on what I'm trying to say, I've really changed my attitude when it comes to, I have a lot more, um, I'm coming from a, a little bit more of a caring, empathetic kind of place too, because, you know, a lot of these people too, you know, if you think about, definitely in the States, I, I don't know enough about England really to, to give that kind of type of uh, assessment, but certainly just how, you know, ghettos, and there's ghettos everywhere, but you know, the States is just so big and there's so many people, you know, when you think about just the constant cycle of, you know, poor neighborhoods, lack of education, crime flourishes because people need money and they don't have legitimate ways of getting it. And then that gets into trouble. Then you get arrested and then you probably are going to be high risk of recidivism. And it's just this vicious cycle going on and on and on. And it's like, and the only difference between me and that person is I was born here and they were born there. I think that it's, Throughout my life, uh, I think that I've, earlier in my life, I think that it was easier to overestimate my own ability to know what it's like to be someone else Yeah. when perhaps I, what I was doing was just making Im assumptions. Yeah, Im importing really <laughs> deep-seated parts of my own personality, and I think... I think that um, I think there's some wisdom in realizing just just how ignorant one could be. To, I mean, it's one thing it's one thing to identify a bunch of factors, and you know, a lot of the work that I do involves conceptual analysis and trying to step back and and reason and so forth. But there's something that you can't capture unless you know what it's like to be that person. And it seems to me that knowing what it's like is something that is not entirely capturable no. fully. No. And um, I think that we can do our very best 
to some degree, and I think you, you can do your best to some degree empathetically to draw upon your own experiences to try to kind of imagine or try to imagine what it might be like. But I'm always reminded, and I think more, quite frankly, as I've gotten older and get a little more experience and thinking, well, yeah, I think I, I, maybe I, I can try, but my ability to like get all the way to the point where, yes, I can clearly imagine what that's like and really, really see, um, see what maybe that other person sees. I, I'm not, not as confident as I used to be, despite my very best efforts. Um, we mentioned psychology earlier, and there are, uh, at least when I was, a part of my education uh, was at Harvard Law School, and when I was there, uh, and I was doing my LLM year, I took a course in, in law and psychology, and the various effects that, that psychological effects that uh, have been discovered that might not be so obvious and that have a real impact on making judgments about other people and things uh, from eyewitness testimony to oh, certain yeah. that's a big one <laughs> uh, yeah, certain presumptions <laughs> that people make and i remember one of what i felt to me personally was a very almost sort of disturbing thing was the presence of literally unconscious bias say for example along various lines like maybe gender based or um you know, racially based or whatever they are, that that no matter how sort of consciously you think of yourself and say, well, I, I don't do this, um, there, there are various experiments that have done things that involve the timing or how long it takes, for example, for someone to ascribe a kind of negative judgment versus a positive judgment onto a person, say, um, based on a photograph or something like that in a, in a vignette or, you know, the way we perceive people. And, um, and it, it, it just, it, it was quite frightening, really, not just from the point of view about, uh, of, hey, what unbiased, um, excuse me, what unconscious biases might people have vis-a-vis -vis me but what kind of unconscious biases do I have vis-a-vis -vis other people and I don't even realize it in which case you know I could be without necessarily even necessarily wanting to um one of the you things know, be that, treating people differently yeah. sorry no, no sorry what I was just gonna say is one, one of the things with um kind of what you're saying that implicit bias um or that subconscious bias right um where they do, uh, there's lots of psychology tests on this where, uh, with police officers. Mm -hmm. So they got the white cops, you know, cops and the black cops. Okay. And basically all the experiment is you have a gun, or I'm assuming they use like a paintball gun or some type of, you know, for, for not using live ammo on a psychology test. Yeah, I, think, I think that would be, they'd have a hard time getting that one past the ethics. Yeah, board. I would, um. I would, I would hope so. I would hope so. And, uh, and basically the it test is. It reminds me of the Millikan experiments. The. And there, 
Are you, are you I'm familiar? not familiar with that one, no. Oh, my word. Well, I'm sorry. I'll let you finish, yeah, and then sure. I'll, I'll tell you about yeah. the Millikan and, experiment. Uh, and basically, the test is you, you have your weapon, and you basically have to decide whether the target you're seeing is hostile or friendly. And when the target was a black person, as you would imagine, the white cops, or you know, the psychologist you know, in the study, the white cop would, there was a, they tended to open fire on the unarmed black man. But the craziest part was even the black cops would open fire on the unarmed black person too at a lesser rate, but not that lesser. And that was one of the craziest things was like, because you would just think, oh, you know, the white cops, the, you know, the white cops are racist kind of thing, right? That's pretty easy. It's a just, you know, it's a bad judgment, to, bad generalization to make, but it's an easy one to make. You wouldn't normally think that the black cop would also have that type of bias, but it just goes to show that you know, whether it's social factors or, you know, personal, whatever's going into, you know, making up that thought process. There's a lot going on there. It's not so simple. If I remember correctly, and I can't be sure that I'm remembering this correctly, so I should preface what I'm saying, but I'm pretty confident, remember, if I'm remembering this unconscious bias study, these studies, that they were stable across the different groups of the people who were being tested, mm-hmm. similarly to what you just said about the, the police officer study. So, Which you wouldn't normally think. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and that actually, yeah, that, that was surprising. Um, I mean, what's interesting there, I mean, one might think intuitively, well, if the person being tested is potentially in the very same group that's being unjustly um, sort of stereotyped or having biased judgments made against them that, well, they would know what it's like and that therefore, because they would know what it's like, um, they would be better at, at, at avoiding a similar kind of biased judgments themselves. And so in a way, I mean, I think that this makes the whole thing even a little bit more disturbing because... I mean, you know, I was saying earlier that I think one of the one of the disadvantages certainly that I would have is I can't know what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. But I think this last point that you bring up is in a way even more disturbing because even if to some degree someone could know what it's like maybe more plausibly than I could, let's say, even they might have, still have this tendency. I had mentioned the Millikan experiment. Yeah, this, please bring that this up. This is yeah. a, a separate topic. But no, no, absolutely. Um, I, I believe it was Millikan. This was quite some time ago, and this that this experiment gave rise gave rise to the idea that before you perform experiments involving human beings or people, you have to pass all of these ethical standards to get permission to do it. Um, and this was before I think that was as common practice as yeah. it currently is. And these experiments involved, basically the, the person being tested would go into this room and um, the person who was actually being tested was told that they're not the ones being tested, but that they're assisting the main person in testing somebody else. Now, the person um, allegedly being tested was of course an actor who was in on the whole thing, and they were ex- uh, they were the, the people being tested were explained that they're going to help administer a test 
that's designed to see um, how well people can perform a certain cognitive task under stress. So we're, you know, we're, we're, we're testing people's ability, I think it was under stress, to perform you know, under certain conditions. Now, it was also explained to the, the person who was being tested, even though they thought they were in on it, right, that the way we're going to do this is there's going to be a person in this room and they have some puzzle or something they ha they're working on. I can't remember exactly what it was. But if they make a mistake, um, then you have to administer a shock. And the, so they had this, these elaborate wires and things, and it, and it really looked like, um, you know, if someone were to look in the room, it would look like they're being wired up. And I, th I believe they closed the room. But the, um, however, the, the person who was ad administering the shocks, they weren't really administering the mm -hmm. shocks, right? But the, the, administ the administer, administrator of the shocks could hear That's right. um, what was going on in the room and the actors were very convincing about you know they were very good at sort of behaving the way someone would work as the voltage was getting higher and higher and the and the guy with the lab coat who was in authority was saying administer the shocks and um and in fact on the panel i think you know there was like you know and of course it was all fake mm -hmm. but um there was like this dial that had like this red zone in it or something like you know, dangerous voltage. And basically the point was to see how far would the person administering the shocks go to sort of obey the the authority who said, no, I mean, you know, you have to do this. Push I know the button. You push that button. Um, and, you know, it turns out that, that some of the people just said, no, I'm not going to do it. And they just said, I quit. I and won't do it. that was a, a very low number. Yeah, of the, the participants. That's correct. So yeah, and I yeah, think this is the. Um, is this, I think it was I Stanley Milgram. Oh, Milgram. I believe. Not yeah, Milligram. the shock. The shock it's experiment. Milgram. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. And this was yeah. done. Yeah, this was. I believe it was the fifties. There's actually film. Uh, I've seen film, of it. So it's it's black and white. So it's the I think Milgram it was the fifties. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, and as you were saying, yeah, to finish that. Um, lit, and this was, base. Yeah, I'll finish it. Then there's the sure. point to that. Um, so this was shortly after World War Two. And yeah, it was the, I believe, yeah, Milgram shock experiment, I think it was actually what it's called. And, okay. um, and basically what it was, and literally the red zone was like 300 volts. Like it, it was certainly would have killed that person. Wow. Like it was, obviously it was fake, but the, and literally all it was, was a person in a lab coat with a clipboard. Yes. Just saying, no, 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 keep going. Yep. And you literally could see these people like clearly were uncomfortable and then how it ended, and yeah, this is why the, the, I, you bring up the ethics, uh, and basically when they hit the maximum level, they wouldn't hear a scream anymore. Yeah, it was just... It was just silence on the other end, because, and, and then the per, you could see the person, the participants are freaking out going, like, because I think they just, like, they think they just killed someone, yep. because they just gave them, like, you know, 400 volts or whatever. It was a crazy number, and it was only because some guy in a lab coat that you've never met prior to walking into that room told you to keep going, you know, and push the button. And, and related to that, there's actually a, an amazing book. I haven't read it yet. I just bought it. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it called Ordinary Men. No, I've not. And it's about a police force in Poland um, during World War II. I can't remember. It was near the end. But basically after the Nazis had swept through Poland 
basically what they did was it was a local police force who were then tasked with carrying out the Nazi, you know, actions to the point that they would actually, a bit of a trigger warning, um, they would actually, they, they executed pregnant women, oh. shot them in the back of the head, you know, naked on a field. And, and basically the point that, and same with what Milgram, the, the point of his experiment was that we all thought that the, you know, the Nazi propaganda, they're horrible, they're evil, and, but the emphasis is they are and we're good and we're going to go kick some bad guy ass, essentially, is what, you know, the, the narrative is. And, and you can see that narrative being played out now, you know, when it comes to terrorism and, and all that. And basically what the purpose of that experiment and this book as well, because it highlights all the things that went down and it was truly horrific. And, and of course, some people said no, but most did. And the point is, is that we're all human and that given the circumstance, we could be, you know, over there doing that type of stuff, you know. And, and I think one of the changes that I've had when I think about myself and other people and when you know people do bad things people do good things as well you know is that you can't always look at yourself as the hero you know because we tend to do that you know that we think we're the good guys and those people over there are bad and therefore we're justified in doing what we're doing but i think people have to think a little bit more broadly in that you have to think of yourself as the villain sometimes too because just like that milgram experiment the point he was making was these were americans on american soil doing, executing someone because someone told them to do it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that sounds very similar. I mean, you, you dial it down, you oversimplify it, of course, but the premise is the same as what was going on, you know, across the Atlantic over in Europe. Well, this, yeah, this connects, I think, nicely with something we were talking about earlier. You know, I had mentioned about the, the significance of control uh, when it comes to morally judging people. And... Um, the philosopher I mentioned earlier, actually, Thomas Nagel, wrote on another topic, not just brain bisection and consciousness, but he wrote on moral luck. Mm, yeah. And the notion of moral luck is this idea, you know, if you think about what luck is, that's sort of when good or bad things happen for you, but it's not under your control whether or not they do, right? And so when something's not under your control, but it just turns out well for you, you say, oh, I was lucky. Right, and if it turns out bad badly for you, you say, "Oh, that was unlucky." And one of the types of moral luck that Nagel classified is called circumstantial luck, and it's luck as to what circumstances you happen to find yourself in. And while um, he might say that we're going to condemn these police officers as evil, um, maybe they were just less lucky than we were right um right that that they you know they might not have have any control over the fact that there was some kind of lunatic who rose to power at that time um and they were faced with that decision and yes maybe maybe they made the wrong decision but um but maybe maybe so too would we you know we don't know um you know, I'd always like to think that, you and know, that's I, would, yeah, yeah. I would, I would be the hero who yeah. would be like, like, uh, what was this Schindler who, or I, I would be like a Schindler. I would be, you know, or, or would I be 
too afraid or would, you know, under, if faced with that decision, um, you know, would I do what I can comfortably now say is the right thing? But you don't know. Uh, so it's a, it's an interesting point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, it is a great book. That ordinary man. That's a great book. If I'll, I'll throw some links up too. I feel so official. I get to <laughs> attach links to papers and books. Oh, sure, feels, feels great. But uh, yeah, no, it, it is an interesting concept, and and it is definitely one that I think um, it's ugly in a way that it's 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 hard. It, it, it's something you know to think that you could do something really awful if you were under those circumstances. But I think it's necessary because I think doing that also better equips you to not go down that path. Mm. You know, I think the, I think you do have to think about that, you know, man, I could do some crazy awful things. And I think just knowing that or having that ability to sort of judge yourself, you know, honestly, I think will allow you to not completely not fall trapped to it, but I think lessen the, the chance that it does. If you think that something is not possible, then you're less likely to take steps to right. prevent it. Um, if, I mean, I just think about, you know, often you hear about young, younger people maybe thinking they're invincible and they'll, oh, yeah. they'll take all kinds of risks or do all kinds of oh, things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, yep. and older people say, these people are nuts, you know, yep. why, you know, and, and um, I think one of one of the reasons in part is just if you have more experience, yeah, you realize that you might not be an exception, mm-hmm. that you too um, yeah. are not invincible or you, you too might um, in a moment of weakness do something you really shouldn't do. And I think I do think that once you do that, you, you tend to prevent. Uh, those things from happening to you more yeah. effectively. And, and it's not even at the most, like obviously what we're talking about is like l- literally ending people's lives. I mean, th- that, that's, that is the absolute extreme side of the spectrum. But, but even on the, on the less, you know, on the kind of lower end, you know, even if you look at, you know, it, <laughs> who's the, I believe it was, uh, do you know the comedian um, Sebastian Maniscalco? Not by name, no. He's an ac- excellent comedian. He's super, super, super great. And uh, he has this excellent bit about Tiger Woods. Hmm. Uh, when Tiger Woods was going through the, you know, when he was cheating, and then, you know, the wife hmm. golf club through the back of the escalator, hmm. you know, so, and, ba- and then, you know, all that. And it was funny, you know, because Tiger Woods went from this beloved, excellent golfer, and then just the amount of hate mm-hmm. on this guy it was ridiculous. And anyway, Sebastian makes this really funny point, and, and he always tries to connect, you know, and he's like, you know, regular people at home. And he's like, the amount of arguments that this caused couples was ridiculous. And basically it was, you know, the girlfriend is, not to give away the bit too much because it's a great bit, but the, the bit is essentially that, you know, she's on the, she's watching the TV going, would you do this? Would you do this? <laughs> and then the joke is, you know, well, he's, he's a multimillionaire best golfer of all time he has supermodels throwing the, the most attractive women you could ever imagine 24 7 banging on this guy's door and he's like well you know i mean babe you know if i was super famous like that i wouldn't be with you <laughs> oh man <laughs> so it's a great bitch it's very ruthless it's a super funny bit but and and he and you know he he's pointing it out with humor, but he's making a good point. It's yeah. that you know, you can't possibly, you know, understand what 
it's you're dealing with something that well a I don't think any person can actually deal with I mean that type of fame and and not think that you're just going to be the same you know average Joe kind of guy that you were before because that's not the situation the situations changed you know you're super famous and you have to deal with all the things that are associated with being super famous but it's interesting because it's like yeah like come on you know <laughs> yeah I mean I I suppose. I think that's one of the reasons, in a way, um, I think I'm glad that I'm not famous and never was famous and probably would want to avoid. I mean, it's not it's not so much that I would think like I would turn into what I perceive somebody like Justin Bieber to be or something. Yeah, like hopefully that. not. <laughs> yeah. you know, I think that I'm 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 well formed enough at this point that I won't become super corrupted. But but still, I mean it. Yeah, I mean, it 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 must just be an entirely different world to be somebody like that. I kind of want to see that now, just to see how that would play out for you. That seems interesting. Right. <laughs> oh man, just dangle a carrot. Yeah, no, but but it's true because it's like you know, like come on, like and to think that if you weren't in that position, you really mean to tell tell me that you wouldn't do the same thing. Like it's, I mean, maybe not. But come on, like, don't don't think that you're so much more admirable than than, you know, the Tiger Woods guy that you would never do that. It's like, well, you would think about it. Like, come on, like, let's be honest here. And it's not just a male thing either. You know, it's not like, oh, just men are pigs and all that. You know, it's it's, it's vice versa, too. You know, we're just people. We're all people at the end of the day. And we do we think things and we make mistakes and we do good things and bad things. And yeah, I mean, I think I, I think. It, I, I sometimes struggle with this. I mean, sometimes, and I think it's important for me to think of myself as basically a good person. Mm -hmm. But, um, and I, and I, I, I think, or at least genuinely, genuinely like to think that maybe not that I'm heroic, but I'm basically a good guy. I think you're pretty good. But, guy. but it's, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, I know what you mean. I mean, um, you know, if if I'm like imagining, I don't know arguing with somebody it i always imagine myself as the virtuous person right um and my my the opponent say in my head who i'm you know telling off as the bad person and it's 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 a tough thing to to really look honestly look at yourself sometimes and say well you know maybe maybe you know maybe i would do that i i you know i I can't imagine that there's certain things I definitely couldn't imagine myself doing, but, um, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult thing to, uh, to try to look at honestly, I think. Yeah. And I think if you do, and like we mentioned earlier, it certainly opens you up to having a little more compassion and understanding if not, if anything, just a little more understanding, I think is sort of the critical one. Um, because yeah, it's just, it's a lot of things that are, you know, like, like me coming here, like to the point that, you know, we're doing this podcast right now. A lot of the things that led to this was not because of me. I had the idea, mm. but through, you know, just different, just, just things out of my control. Lots of things kind of seems to, you know, for, for, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, kind of push me down this path. And then I thought, well, okay, let's pull the trigger. So that final pulling the trigger, if you will, buying equipment, you know, doing all the, the administrative stuff. Yeah, that was me. But what got me here largely was not because of me. 
you know, it was other people being supportive or, you know, just circumstance, just general circumstance. And I think that, that keeping that in mind, and I, I found this helpful to me, not that I consider myself the great guru of wisdom here, but. <laughs> oh, I, come I, on. I, Don't I, sell yourself short. I, but no, I, I find it useful. I mean, not just useful, but I mean, really valuable to think about what we have to be grateful for and how much what we do have, the good things that we do have going on and the opportunities that we do have. Uh, for example, I got the opportunity, I, I wasn't imagining, for example, that I would wind up being at a university in the UK. I'd imagine, yeah. Um, and yet, you know, through through various circumstances, it just happened. And now I have this really wonderful opportunity and I'm grateful for that. Um, and uh, yeah, so I agree. I mean, I think I think focusing on on what to be to, to be grateful for and recognizing that, um, you know, getting back to this issue of luck, um, you know, we talked about moral luck, but I think that there's other types of luck that involve your life unfolding the way you want want it to unfold mm -hmm. and to tell the kind of narrative you want to tell. And I think um, I'm always. I try to remind myself when I think things aren't going so well or I'm unhappy uh, about, hey, you know, um, I've been able to kind of write the story of me, so to speak, in a certain way, and not everyone might get the chance to write it like that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a good, a good attitude to have. I mean, you know, so you can both feel good about your contribution and the fact that you make something happen, but at the same time, um, also recognize how lucky mm -hmm. one is. Yeah, that, that was the biggest change uh, for me, um, I'd say, in the last very recent few months, I'd say. Um, really taking a greater appreciation for how well things go and, and the people that you have around you. And not that I have a big group of people that, that I... Uh, I'm close to, uh, which is a good thing. Um, but, uh, you know, that the people that are close to me, you know, you, you really do, because it could just go away. Mm. It could go away. And, and for reasons that are out of anyone's control, but certainly, you know, having that appreciation for where you are and what you have. And I think an even greater appreciation for the fact that it could go away. Um, and not even because of anything that you do or anyone does. It's just shit happens. And yeah, I think it's really helped me kind of be a little more um, grounded. And I think it's also helped me um, calm down a little bit too. Mm. Um, just when it comes to, you know, being a little more understanding. Because at the same time, you know, you don't know what other people are going through either. And that's a big thing, you know, it kind of ties back to what we were talking about with, you know, um, yeah, ju just making those assumptions about, oh, those are bad people, you know, it's like, no, like that's that. And okay, there are some people who are shockingly just evil for the sake of being evil, <laughs> which raises a different, an interesting point too. But, you know, for the most part, you know, I think you really do have to appreciate what you have, who you're with. And I think even the, the biggest step, too, is also letting those people know, mm. you know, letting those people know and have it in your mind, too, that, you know, 
you know, it's awesome that you have what you have and, and be grateful for that. You know, it's, yeah, it's a bit of a change. I don't know if it's, yeah, just getting older or, I mean, even just being here, like mm. at university. I mean, it's, it's sad that it's coming to an end, you know, um, because, you know, the people that you meet and, and I mean, you've gone to university, you know, many different places too. So I'm sure, you know, you felt the same way too. Yeah. All, all good things come to an end. Mm-hmm. Um, as they say, mm-hmm. but, um, I guess, I guess the, the good thing to do is to take, take the good parts, um, be grateful for the good parts and then carry them forward so that there'll be future good things, mm-hmm. uh, to experience. And you never know. Um, you never know. I think it's important. I think it's very important to be hopeful. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think, maybe guardedly optimistic. I mean, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I, it sucks know. to be nihilistic, right? Might as <laughs> I mean, well that be on would the just other be side. horrible. Yeah, you know, exactly. Just think, oh, my, my best years are behind me. Oh, well, I guess I got to keep puffing some air here for a while until, you know, no. I mean, um, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that's right. And, uh, and um, you know, I, uh, and especially, I mean, the end of your, I, I for me, at, at least, the end of my, my university years as an undergraduate, this was one of the first times a very, dis- I, I could sense, and I was very much aware of a chapter in my adult life coming to an end. And I was very poignantly aware of this, mm-hmm. uh, maybe in a way that I hadn't been. I mean, yes, I mean, I, I felt it when I graduated from high school, but, it, 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 you know, even more somehow at university. And I, and I started to think about all the people that I met and who I'd become, um, you know, as, as a young adult. It, in fact, I think that's one of the reasons that I've always, when, when I wanted to be a, a teacher, I, I always thought it would be really exciting to be a teacher at the undergraduate level. Because for me, um, that was a time in my life when people that I learned from in different ways, not just academically, but otherwise, just had this real profound effect mm-hmm. on on who I am today, and and the things that, despite the changes, they're just certain core values or certain things you just believe in, and you, and and I thought to myself, well, you know, I think a, a really one of the reasons I, you know, we're talking about being grateful for being here is I get a chance to do that for a living. Yeah, in my own in my own way, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and I I wouldn't trade that for anything. So. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's very interesting. Yeah, and, and yeah, it just kind of makes you kind of take stock a bit too. And, and on the on the other side, you know, all, all good things come to an end. I think there's also you have to understand too that bad things do as well. Mm. Just things change. Think time doesn't stop; it keeps going. And and that's sort of the biggest thing too is that, I mean, I've had a pretty comfortable life overall certainly far luckier than than most and i'm fortunate for that and you know just for you know what you know again things that were just out of my control but i certainly got i got a good hand for sure and i'm appreciative of that absolutely and you know even when you go through things yourself even though i've you know uh, you know had a you know pretty comfortable life overall you know it also doesn't mitigate that when you do go through bad things that it yeah it can really bring you down i mean uh, you know there's a 
two, three times in my life, in my sh- the short life that I've lived so far, where like hitting rock bottom, you know, mm-hmm. like really feeling as bad as one could get. And one of the biggest things that helped me get out of that and move forward was also an understanding that A, you're going to just, it's time is going to make it, you know, less harsh. But also that there's also other people, don't get so wrapped up at your own negativity. You do have to understand too that, holy shit, there's some people out there who are really, really going through some awful, awful things. And again, it doesn't make your pain lesser. It's relative, right? Mm-hmm. We all go through our things that what, what happened to me that was so negative might not be a big deal to someone else or it could even be worse on someone else. You know, you do have to ha- understand that there is that relativity as well. Well, I find that in, in my experience has been just within the course of my life, there are things or challenges that I feel that I can emotionally and otherwise handle now. Yeah, absolutely. That I couldn't have handled nearly as well, um, say, when I was 20 or 25 years old, and an absolutely necessary step for that to happen, going back to your point about these other things that when they happened to me, I thought this was horrific, this was horrible, and, um, but the fact that remembering that all of us have to face a lot of these things. It's going to be different for for each person. Um, But realizing that, yeah, this isn't going to kill me. It's going to be really, really unpleasant, but I'm, I've come out of this and I'm still, still going. And, um, you know, there is a kind of, um, in, in my office, I have this little cartoon of a, it's this big heron and, um, (laughs) And I, somebody gave it to me when I was working on my, my um, PhD, and I just thought, I'm never going to get this thing done. It's horrible, <laughs> you know, and I'm so isolated, and it's just, I'm so lonely, and I'll never be able to write this big thing, and it's terrible. But, um, and I can't even remember who gave it to me, but I still have it. I share it with some of my students. It's a big heron, and basically in the beak of the heron, you can see the back legs of this frog kind of of hanging out of his mouth. And the, the arms of the forearms of the frog are, are clutching the heron's neck to prevent him from going, you know, down into his stomach, you know, and it just says, never give up, you know, (laughs) just, you know, I just like in my, in my, when I feel like, no, you know, if it, if it matters, you know, never give up. Yeah. So, and, and I think there's also a big difference too. Um, I know Jordan Peterson talks about this a lot and that's kind of how I got exposed to it, but there's a huge difference between embracing, um, an issue versus running away from it mm. because either way that issue is going to, it's not, assuming it's an unavoidable issue. It's, it's something that you absolutely have to get through and it's rather negative and it's difficult and it's emotionally and psychologically draining. But there's a huge difference into what you get from it in terms of, you know, becoming a, a, a better person when you run away from something versus, you know what, let's just, it's going to suck. It's mm-hmm. awful. It doesn't change that, but just go f- attack it, mm-hmm. you know, embrace it. Don't run away from, from the things that are difficult. And 
it seems to work out pretty well. You know, it tends to that you get through it quicker mm. because there's also a great, I believe it was Hunter S. Thompson had a great quote, procrastinations for a student, right? That's a great one, you know, where, and I'm going to misquote this, but it's a good Hunter S. Thompson quote. And, and basically what he says is that, you know, in regards to procrastination, either way that decision is going to be made for you. You can, you can make the decision now or it's going to be made by circumstance. Mm. But it's going to happen one way or the other. And there's a huge difference between delaying that law and econ paper <laughs> till the day before it's due versus just, you know, even if you don't understand it, but just picking away at it. Pick, 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 till hopefully something shakes loose and you get a, a decent end product it, it, psychologically. I mean, and it's also empowering. You're not a victim to circumstance. You're, you're, you're getting after it. You know, you're, you're just going for it, you know? Yeah, I, I just recently had a, a discussion with a student in, in, in connection with a module where um, there was a formative and the student did not do well in the formative. And uh, in this particular case, I was giving feedback in the formative and that student came to see me. The student sort of faced it head on. Mm -hmm came to see me, and I worked with this student, and um, when it came time for the summative, for the final exam, um, there is anonymous marking to make it mm -hmm. fair, and um, I didn't know this um, at the time, but um, the student, once, once the marks, or at least the provisional marks were released, the student just came into my office and um, it made me feel really good for for this student and I also felt good about it that I helped the student because what she said was um, to say thank you that uh, and that she was kind of amazed actually at the mark she wound up with which was a very good mark mm -hmm. and you know I told her I mean that that was an incredibly gratifying thing for me to see um, and to see that, that it was her accomplishment, that yes, I was there to help, but it was her accomplishment. And to see, to feel like it's not that you're doing it, but you can be there and encourage that person and make that person feel safe enough that, yeah, okay, let's go. Let's really fix this thing. And to see, to see that kind of a result, I mean, it's ex extremely gratifying for me just to be a part of it. And I wanted to tell her there's a, I can't remember the way the tune goes, but it was something like "They can't take that away from me." Is the the name of this this old tune? And and I told her that, yeah, I mean, you got something out of that, and and they can never take that away from you mm -hmm. because because you worked at it, because you faced it, and now, um, you know, it's 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 really gratifying to see um, a reward for a job well done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I know that. Yeah. And especially as a, as a teacher that, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the point of teaching is that, you know, you, you kind of, in a way, you know, you get to craft young minds and make them a bit better than when you found them. But, but that's like anything. I, I yeah. think you should always have the attitude that, which I'm very guilty of in the past is, um, of not doing is you really should, make every effort to leave people better off than when you found them. Mm. You know, I think that's a really 
that's a high standard, definitely. But, you know, you have to aim somewhere, you know, and, and, you know, I think that's something, just that idea, you know, leaving or a situation, you know, situation or a person or people, you know, better off than when you found them. Because in doing that, inevitably, you're going to leave yourself better as well. I mean, that's kind of how it works. You know, there, there's also, and you would hope then that later on, there's that reciprocity aspect of it too, is that if you're nice to someone today, you know, later on, hopefully, and maybe not, but there's an increased likelihood, I, I would assume, you know, that, yeah, that the, they return the, the favor. The best way to get people to believe that you're honest and trustworthy and well-meaning is to actually be hundred percent embrace well i mean to actually yeah be that hundred uh, percent. Um, yeah, there's and and sure um and it does feel good if when people you know believe you're that way because you actually try to be mm-hmm. and indeed um maybe and i think you're right that 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 i think most most people or at least i like to think that most people strive to be that way and they'll it's it's nice if someone sort of wants to help you mm-hmm. because well they 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 appreciate who you are mm-hmm. and it's just a genuine motive it's it's not so much um uh, how shall we say less 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 calculated seeming like well you know if i do this you know then you know people will kind of perceive me as being this way and then they'll do this for me um, I, I think the way to go is just to try to be the real thing as best you can, knowing that you're going to fall short, but and, still try. And people see through that. That's the thing. You can only fool. I mean, you might be able to get away with it for a while if mm-hmm. you're really good at it, but eventually people see yeah. through the bullshit. I mean, it, it's, and it's a hell of a lot of effort to maintain that facade too. You know, it's a lot of effort. Yeah, unless you're an extremely talented sociopath. Exactly. Um. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, we got about we got like ten minutes ish, fifteen. Oh, we got fifteen still. Oh, okay, good. Okay, so how's it going so far? How okay. are you feeling? Oh, great. Actually, could I take a break for just a moment? Yeah, go for it. All right. Um, just hit pause on. Okay, so yeah, we're back from our little break. So I guess the question is: Is it still the same podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um. I guess if it's related in the right way. I guess so, part. right? Um, so, yeah. So, uh, when we paused, uh, one of the things that I wanted to get you on uh, to close the show out um, was, uh, you mentioned earlier, incompatibilism. And uh, you just kind of briefly touched on it, and then we kind of kept going. So, I, I thought it was going well, so I didn't want to backtrack too ba- uh, too much on it. Um, but, yeah, just because uh, I guess we got 10, 15 minutes for that topic. Um yeah, love to have you dive into that a little more. Sure. Um, so, so basically, uh, there's there's a debate between incompatibilism and compatibilism, and the when you talk about compatibilism, right, you then say, well, what are these two things that are compatible that can go together? And uh, as I mentioned before, the two things are determinism, on the one hand, and free will on the other genuine free will. So the compatibilists think that those two things can go together. And I spent some time, a little bit of time, explaining 
why I'm an incompatibilist and explaining this idea that, well, look, if, um, if, if the laws of nature and the past and so forth absolutely necessitate everything that I do, and if I have no control at all over the past, especially before I even existed or was born, and what the laws of nature are, I mean, if I lack any control over those things, which presumably I, I do, then it seems really implausible to think that I really have control over what seem to be my free actions. Why? Because every one of them is necessitated by the, these things that I have absolutely no control over whatsoever. And, and I find that argument convincing. And so I think one, one question someone might have is, um, well, if, if you don't find that argument convincing, then you could think, well, hey, why are you an incompatibilist, right? On the other hand, um, if, if you do find that argument at least somewhat convincing, you know, you might be sort of drawn to incompatibilism and, and you might think to yourself, well, why would anyone be a compatibilist? I mean, how, what would a compatibilist say maybe in response to that? Why are they still a compatibilist? And, and how could determinism be consistent with the idea that I'm really freely and voluntarily doing something in a way that would make me morally responsible for what I do? And I think it's just worth elaborating a little bit that, that one of the big compatibilist moves here is to say, well, look, um, you know, if, if, if somebody voluntarily does something um, and it's the kind of thing that um, we want to say they're morally responsible for doing, um, you know, what, 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 what do we think has to be true in order for it? for what I just said to be true. In other words, you know, when are we prepared to say that, hey, what you did is, um, was voluntary and you're morally responsible for it? And I think that many compatibilists would ultimately want to say something like, well, um, you did it, you know, even though no one was putting you under duress, um, you know, it's not like your, your arms were... <laughs> hooked up to some contraption that was making your finger pull the trigger or something like that. No, um, you did what you did because you wanted to. You, you, you chose to do it. You wanted to do it at the, at the time, um, you know, and you, and, and you made that decision under kind of normal circumstances. And, and yeah, that's, you know, you did it because you wanted, you wanted to do it. Now, if you start to kind of think about that, sort of in slow motion, so to speak, you know, if I say that I do something because I wanted to, how do we understand that? Well, one way to understand that, understand that is in part a very sort of straightforward way where you think that, well, um, if I did what I did because I wanted to do it, what that means is that among the causes the immediate causes of my doing what I did are my beliefs and desires. And I mean, that's, that's what it would basically amount to, to say that I, I did it because I wanted to, right? That, that my desires or beliefs stood in the right kind of causal relationship, right, in part, and maybe other relationships too that would somehow make sense of what I'm doing. But part of it is, is certainly causal. At least many people might think that. Well, then you have to ask yourself, well, if that's true, 
Well, then what are beliefs and desires? And many people would say, well, the most plausible candidates for being such things are states of or events occurring in your brain. Okay, fine. And determinism is certainly consistent with these events in my brain happening. And then say, because they happen, then I do something. And that would be doing something because I want to do it. And, well, that's all we need. Now, of course, the incompatibilist might come back and say, yeah, but um, it's not really up to you what you want, right? And, and at this point, the, um, you know, the compatibilist says, oh, come on. Um, look, just, just you know, stop getting so obsessed with the metaphysics of the beginning of time here. Just look. I mean, let's just think about what we mean when we say that somebody did something because they wanted to do it. And that's what you know, voluntarily doing something is, and that's what makes somebody morally responsible is. And all of that is entirely consistent with the idea that every detail of everything you do is ultimately determined by things that you didn't have control over. But so what? I mean, you did it because you wanted to. And, um, and so I think that um, this would be the main, one of the main ideas as to why someone might be a compatibilist. Now, I'm, I find the, the other argument more persuasive. I'm, I'm troubled by this idea that, well, look, I mean, yeah, sure, um, maybe like some desire of mine was like the proximate cause of my finger pulling the trigger or whatever it is, but I still have a problem if, 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 if that happening had to happen the way it did because of things that I definitely don't control ultimately. So um, this is what drives me toward incompatibilism. And I think the second point I want to elaborate, having just elaborated the point about how, you know, somebody might be a compatibilist. Another thing I think I mentioned earlier is that, well, if, if you're an incompatibilist like me, um, well, what that means is you think, well, determinism, gosh darn well, better not be true, because if it is, we're done as far as free will, forget it. Um, but I also mentioned that, well, all right, well, let's say determinism isn't true. Let's say indeterminism is true, meaning that, that some events just, I don't know, randomly occur. They're not, they're not determined by all the previous stuff. But if they randomly occur, um, well, then I don't cause them either. <laughs> Nothing does, right? That's what, and if I don't cause them, well, then presumably I don't control them. And if I don't control them, well, the, the thing that I'm supposed to have to have the free will is enough control. So it would be sort of okay to say it's now fair to blame you for something that you had control over, right? So, so a question then comes, uh, comes up, which is if incompatibilism is true, um, what also you know, would have to be true for us to actually have a chance at maybe having free will. And this, this taps back to something I mentioned earlier, uh, to sort of complete the thought. Uh, earlier, I, I distinguished between two types of metaphysical thing, if you like, an event or a series of events or a substance, meaning, you know, something that's sort of all there at once. Um, and one form of incompatibilism, um, says that, yeah, determinism and free will are incompatible. Um, now, it turns out 
that determinism is false, but that itself doesn't show us that it's still possible for us to have free will. What I'm going to do is add this extra thing, right, that will then make my incompatibilism, make it possible for me to say what does have to be true for us to have free will. And that extra thing is that a human being ultimately is a substance. And as a substance, it can cause things to happen. So that when I say, so for example, my desires or my beliefs, they might have a, a causal role to play. But um, that causal role is not a deterministic one. It's sort of, a, it's sort of an, an influencing one. So for example, let's say that um, I'm faced with this moral decision as to whether to eat that third piece of chocolate cake that I really shouldn't, and it really does belong to someone else, but I can't help myself but feel this desire because I love chocolate, all right? Now, if I, if I take the cake and eat it um, because I desire it, well, the compatibilist will say, well, you know, that's enough, uh, you know, for it to be voluntary. I, I'd want to unpack this a little bit further and say, you know, if I, if I take the cake because largely I desire its chocolatey goodness, even though I'm not being responsive to other reasons I should be responsive to, like it belongs to somebody else, right? Um, the picture that I would have as an agent causal person, a substance causal person, is to think that um, I would distinguish myself from my desires. And I would say that my desires can influence me, but what I am is not just some event governed by the laws of physics, be they deterministic or probabilistic. Instead, I'm, I'm a substance that can cause things to happen maybe under the influence of um, events that I am different than. And among the events that I am actually distinguishable from are my own desires and beliefs. So um, there's this other sort of part of me, that the, the real me, so to speak, the, the agent Chris Taggart, in my case, and he's capable of, um, you know, even if his desires or beliefs are inclining him in a certain way to do it, at the end of the day, he has this sort of agent causal oomph, right, that he can, he can push back and engage this other kind of causation uh, in order to not just simply be determined by the laws of nature, which if you think about them, at least the standard laws of nature, and if you think about writing them out like F equals MA or, you know, what, whatever they are, um, at least the scientific ones, um, if you think about it, um, most of them seem to govern the behavior of events. You know, you say if a certain event happens involving things, right, and, and, and then this other event will happen. Well, what's an event? Well, an event is, 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 could be thought of as things being a certain way. But the idea of agent causation or substance causation is not, it's not that my being a certain way then causes this other event to happen. It's that I literally, the substance, cause this other event to happen. And if I'm that kind of a thing, then it seems to me that if indeterminism is true, then it would be possible for me 
in principle to exert the kind of control I would need to be capable of exerting to be morally responsible for what I do. So that's a further elaboration, right? I don't think that incompatibilism alone gets us to free will. I think you need to supplement it. Um, in my case, with a view called agent causalism, which is a fancy way of saying that we agents, you know, what, what enables us, part of what enables us to have genuine free will is that we are beasties that can cause things to happen in a kind of maybe not so usual way um, by, by being substance causes of our actions, essentially. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, <clears throat> yeah, that's a great way to... To wrap up the show, I know uh, Eve and I both we when we paused, we were like, "Yeah, we gotta, we gotta get him back on that." That was really good. Um, yeah, um, wrapping it up then. Um, just closing remarks wise. Uh, thank you very much for for being here. I know it's two hours. Or I think we're. I don't know what we're at now, but after editing, but probably about two fifteen or two twenty, something like that. Um, yeah, there's a big time commitment, so. Um, I just want to say thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, it was as just as good as I was hoping it was going to be. So well, was, I'm, yeah, gl I'm glad to hear on. that. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. So just thank you again. And, um, yeah, I'll throw some links up, um, for the papers and books that we talked about, um, for the millions of listeners out there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's good to have all that stuff out there because it, you know, provides a little bit more context too, you know, as to some of the stuff that we're talking about. Um, yeah. Anything from you? I, I know it must be weird. I'm assuming you've never done one of these. No, I, I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not experienced at being interviewed. It's, it's, it's been a pleasure. I think that, Great. um, the way that you've done it is, is very inviting and, um, and it and it's been it's been fun just to talk about some things that interest me and and also to hear about some things that you're interested in. So, it was my pleasure to be a part of it. Great, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, um, anything kind of um, I know you got your one paper that you're not pu that's not published yet, and one that's published. And do you have any kind of work that's going to be put out there, or anything you want to? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the most recent work that I, I've been working on and, and hoping gets picked up is, is about some of the general topics. Uh, I talk about um, the relationship between some of the metaphysical stuff we talked about uh, for moral responsibility. And I also try to connect that with something else that we talked about, which is different forms of moral luck. And I uh, have written a paper in which I, I try to distinguish different types of moral luck and try to talk about um, which types I think are related to uh, dessert and which types perhaps aren't, which, which types might pose a problem, which types might not, and how this bears upon, um, ultimately bears upon the view that I currently hold metaphysically, which is libertarian agent causalism. So it's, it's, a, it's a paper that kind of brings together some of the moral luck stuff with the metaphysical libertarian agent causal stuff and relates it to um, things like the voluntary act requirement and the justification of punishment under the criminal law. Cool. So, yeah. yeah. Definitely. I'm looking forward to that one. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it, not understanding it, doing a podcast with you to explain it. Okay. 
well, <laughs> happy to help yeah, if that yeah. should, should come that's, to pass. That's, it, yeah. it works, right? So anyway, yeah, so we'll wrap that up. And um, yeah, fantastic. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me.